We'll hear argument first this morning in number 99-2035, Cooper Industries, Inc. versus Leatherman Tool Group. Uh, Mr. Reynolds. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. May it please the Court. The Court today considers what is the proper standard of review for appellate courts when faced with the constitutional challenge to a punitive damage award as grossly excessive. In the instant case, the Ninth Circuit upheld a punitive damage award against Cooper Industries of $4.5 million, which was 90 times the $50,000 compensatory award. It did so using an abusive discretion review standard. We submit that that was error, that the Court of Appeals should have examined the constitutional excessiveness issue independently under a de novo review standard. This Court framed the gross excessiveness constitutional inquiry as it applies to punitive damages in BMW versus Gore. It identified there three guideposts for making what is essentially a comparative analysis, looking at the reprehensibility of the offense, the ratio or relationship of the punitive damages to the compensatory award in order to discern, discern whether the punishment bore any discernible relationship to the offense or was wildly disproportional, and as a third guidepost to look at other available sanctions, whether criminal or civil, that would bear on the question of how society generally punishes this sort of offense. Mr. Reynolds, when you have a standard, uh, what should I say, so, uh, so, so wildly extreme as wildly disproportionate, does it make any difference? With, does it really, really think it makes any difference whether you're reviewing the lower court for uh, de novo or for abuse of discretion? I mean, the, the question is whether the court abused its discretion in not considering this wildly disproportionate. Does that really boil down to any difference for between whether it is wildly disproportionate. I, I just find it hard to imagine a situation in which I would be reviewing a district judge for abuse of discretion and would find that it is that it is an abuse of discretion, where I wouldn't also find that it was wildly disproportionate. Well, Your Honor, I think that you certainly could come to the same conclusion under both standards. Uh, but the uh, My the point is, wouldn't you almost — wouldn't you virtually always come to the same conclusion under both standards? I, I, I don't know that you would, and, and I think that the reason de novo review is important uh, is that you have a, a, a legal issue here. You have one that implicates a constitutional right. Uh, it is, I think, admittedly uh, bottomed on guideposts that are fluid concepts, and there's a need to have some kind of a coherent uh, doctrine that develops so as to have a uniform application of the, uh, of the substantive standards. Well, do you have much doubt, Mr. Reynolds, that if the standard is de novo review, there will be more determinations of uh, lower of the district court, trial court upset than if there is abuse of discretion review? I believe there probably would be more uh, uh, awards that would be upset or there would be more remitted. And there would be more, more law would develop uh, in the courts of appeals, presumably. That, that's exactly uh, the point I was trying to make, that I do think that uh, you would get a more coherent body of, of law, you would be able to uh, better determine how to apply the standard, and, uh, and it would be applied in a way that would be more uniform. And I think one of the objectives of the 
of the due process protection is that people who are uh, similarly situated uh, be treated uh, uh, the same Mr. way. Mr. Reynolds, is this a, a mixed question of fact and law that we're talking about? Uh, Justice O'Connor, uh, I think that it could be characterized as a mixed question of fact and law in that, as I understand what that means, it means that if you have established facts and you're applying a, a, a legal principle to those facts, that would be a mixed fa- uh, question of fact and law. For instance, in the first prong, the reprehensible conduct, presumably uh, a review of the facts is included in the appellate review. So you do seem to have a mixed standard. Well, to mixed some Mixed question. Excuse me. Uh, to, to some extent, I, I think I would agree with you. Uh, it does It does seem to me that what we're talking about here in de novo review is the same thing that the Court uh, does traditionally. As to historical facts, uh, the, the Court accords deferential review, and, and we don't suggest that there would be any difference as to that. But when you get to the legal issue of where you cross the constitutional line uh, and you start looking at it in a comparative analysis, which really is looking at extrinsic facts, uh, that are outside the record, that's where the legal inquiry comes in and de novo review would be required. On the reprehensibility of the conduct, uh, do you envisage that if you prevail, uh, the circuit court will have some sort of standards for reprehensibility, or how, how will it go about writing this? Well, I, I can see if it's abuse of discretion, that I can hear the, the circuit court saying, well, trial judges uh, see the witness and they've hear, heard the whole trial and they're in the good position to make this judgment. We're not going to second-guess them. That, that's what would happen under the abuse of discretion standard, you know, likelihood. Uh, what would the circuit court do with this first prong that Justice O'Connor mentioned, reprehensibility, I, I, under your view? As, as I understand it, Your Honor, the, the Court of Appeals would uh, basically take the, uh, the conduct, and on the established record, that would be the baseline, if you will, for its comparative uh, analysis under the Gore factors. You would have to look at where that conduct fits on a continuum of blameworthiness, if you will, and that it, that would be essentially a, a legal question. You're, what you're doing is very much, it seems to me, Your Honor, what you do uh, under the de novo review standard that this Court announced in, uh, in Baja Kajayan, I believe. Mr. Reynolds, may I uh, interrupt you at that point, because what you described sounded very much to me like what a jury does when it's choosing among negligence degrees of culpability. Negligence, gross negligence, recklessness. Those are quintessentially jury decisions, and they're not reviewed de novo by any judge, not the trial judge, not the Court of Appeals. So why isn't the degree of reprehensibility exactly the same? Well, Your Honor, here the, we, we, we are over a threshold of malice that is necessary in order to uh, award a punitive award. Just like uh, you would be over a threshold if you decide there's negligence. Then if there's negligence, then there would be recovery, but there might be greater recovery if you had a higher standard. Right, but, but I think what the Court has said in BMW v. Gore uh, is that you are going to determine uh, whether or not the punishment that is imposed here is reasonably related to the crime uh, and whether it rationally serves the interest of punishment and deterrence. Uh, and that is a analysis, uh, a legal analysis, that looks to this conduct 
as compared to similar conduct and the way in which that has been treated uh, in, in the punishment arena uh, in, in, other, in other situations. But could you describe the precise test that the Court of Appeals would be applying under your standard as compared with the precise test it would apply under an arbitrary capricious standard? It seems to me the substantive question which they would apply on de novo is whether any reasonable person could possibly consider this proportionate. Isn't, isn't that the test? It has to be wildly disproportionate. I assume that means no reasonable person could consider it proportionate, right? I, I, I think that that would okay. — I don't, I don't quarrel with that, Your Honor. Now, if you're using an abuse of discretion standard, you would be asking whether any reasonable judge, whether no reasonable judge could think that any reasonable person would consider this proportionate. I mean, are you sure that the two questions don't boil down to the same thing? Well, Your Honor, I, 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 I it's, it's just too subtle for me to understand the difference between the two. I, I think that that there is a substantive standard that has been announced as being applicable in BMW v. Gore, and we're not going back and, and suggesting we revisit that. What we're saying is that it ought to get meaningful application. It ought to be applied so as to allow the courts to give some content to it uh, and through, through uh, cases to come to a, a more uh, clear understanding of exactly how it applies in different cases. Uh, it's, it is, I believe, clear, as and I agree with the Chief Justice, uh, that the de novo standard uh, would allow courts of appeals who, be- who believe that this was um, disproportionate punishment, it would allow them to, uh, to apply a remediator uh, when, under the, the abuse of discretion standard, they would feel that they, uh, they were not compelled to. I understand that, but it seems to me that whenever a court of appeals finds that no reasonable person could possibly consider this proportionate, so it is wildly disproportionate, it would automatically find that no reasonable judge could have thought that a reasonable person would find this proportionate. I don't know your, how you can your, make your Honor, finding I, I don't without, disagree. without automatically making the other one. So what are we arguing about? I, it, it, I, I don't disagree that where you have a punitive award that is so over the line that everybody agrees that it would be uh, unconstitutional, that whichever standard you apply would probably give you the same result. Uh, you're going to have a lot of cases where you're not talking about something that is so over the line. I happen to believe this case is one that is so over the line. And the, and the point is that uh, you've got a legal question. It's got a constitutional dimension. You've got a, a, a standard that uh, is, is not one that is dependent upon uh, looking at the historical facts and second-guessing them. And, and that, I believe, dictates that you, you, you look for de novo review and independent uh, review by the, by the courts of appeals. Whatever I, word you use to describe it, I take it that what you're essentially asking is to have the judges, a panel of three judges, sit as though they were jurors, they, as though they were jurors making the determination of reprehensibility. As, as though they were jurors in making the policy judgment as to what the appropriate punishment is in order to fulfill the goals of deterrence and retribution. And yet if we go back in history, punitive damages, I believe, was considered in the bailiwick of the jury and not 
the judge. In fact, there was a question whether any judge, even the trial judge, could overturn the jury's verdict. Is that not so? I I believe it's clear that that you could have a court overturn a verdict if indeed it was a verdict that was outrageously excessive or, as they said in the early cases, driven by juror bias or passion and was not proportional to the offense. And I believe the common law as well as the early American law has said that punitive damages would certainly be reviewable in that regard, as would compensatory. So I think appellate review is available. I'm not certain of that. And I think that, at least as to compensatory damages, there was some disagreement on this Court whether there was any allowance of appellate review at all. Justice Scalia and I differed on that question. I understand. Would you argue — But I believe in Gasparini you said that there was appellate review. Would you argue, Mr. Reynolds, different principles to — and different propositions to the circuit court than you would to the jury? Or do you just argue the same thing? I think that the — well, the arguments to the jury in this regard would depend in large part on the instructions that were given to the jury. And I think that there are some instructions that would be very problematic to give the jury in terms of the BMW v. Gore guideposts. So I don't think the jury would have the same — So the Court of Appeals does consider different propositions, i.e., comparative awards in similar cases in other parts of the country or something like that? I think that's right. I think that the — that what happens is this is a check on the excesses of the jury determination with regard to punishment. And it is a test, as I understand BMW v. Gore, that says that we're going to look at what the jury did in this case in order to serve society's interest in punishment and deterrence and to see whether that is out of line, constitutionally out of line, with the punishment that is visited for similarly situated people who commit similar offenses. Mr. Reynolds — It is a check, if you will, at the appellate level on the jury judgment. So if that's true, then Justice Scalia's proposition that no reasonable juror could find the award doesn't quite work because you're putting forth different contentions to the two different bodies. You're putting one case to the Court of Appeals and another to the jury, i.e., that this is inconsistent with what other juries and judges have done around the country, and therefore it just doesn't meet the standard of proportionality under some nationwide proportionality standard that the jury didn't hear about. Or is the answer that the jury can hear about this stuff? I think that certainly there are special instructions that could help to inform the jury's decision that we would not be at all adverse to giving. I understood Justice Scalia's question to be whether the Court of Appeals was looking to see whether the punitive award was reasonable amount and rational in terms of the purposes that it was intended to serve. And I think that's true. Mr. Reynolds, you're looking over one important player. It's not jury versus Court of Appeals making this decision. The Court of Appeals doesn't get into the picture until a district judge, the trial judge. So it would be de novo review not of the jury's assessment, but of the trial judge's refusal to tamper with the jury's verdict. 
Okay. So isn't it the, the Court of Appeals is reviewing not the jury's action, but the trial judge's action, isn't that? That's, that's correct. And, and I think that, as we were saying, Justice Ginsburg, the Court of Appeals would, in that instance, uh, do the traditional deferential review of the historical facts or the fact uh, questions, but as to this legal question, it would be a de novo review. Mr. Reynolds, let me ask you if I am understanding your argument correctly in this respect. I think you're making two different kinds of arguments for the value of the de novo review. The first argument uh, is simply that de novo review on its own merits is, is the better review here. The second, the second argument is uh, sort of a practical one, that if all you have is abuse of discretion review of what the trial judge does when the trial judge reviews the jury verdict, you're not going to have very many appellate cases, and you're certainly not going to have many appellate cases uh, with exhaustive discussions uh, of the way jury verdicts ought to be examined. And I think you're saying that if you have de novo review, you're simply going to have more articulations by appellate courts of the way trial courts ought to look at jury verdicts. And if you are making the second argument, I suppose you're making, you're saying what ought to happen in the development of the review of punitive damages is the same thing that I think happened uh, back in the old days on the review of jury verdicts of negligence. If you go back in the law reports to the 20s and the 30s when negligence law was developing, you find exhaustive appellate discussions uh, of whether, you know, the train was close enough to the, to the intersection for the driver to have been negligent and going out on the track and so on. And I, I think you're arguing for a, a sort of parallel between punitive damages development and maybe the old negligence law development uh, in that you're saying each one would profit greatly by having plenary treatment in appellate courts. Is that a fair? That, that, that is fair, uh, uh, Justice Breyer. I, I do think that. I, I think that the two arguments are go hand in hand. I, in other words, I, I agree. My, my, I agree. my argument uh, that the uh, that de novo but, review is in and of itself acquired. But the value is not only in the substantive standard. The value is in the application of that standard uh, in sort of developed appellate discussion. I, I think that's right, especially in light of the of the recent decision in BMW v. Gore. Yeah. May, I, may I ask you a question, uh, Mr. Reynolds? You indicated that you thought the Court of Appeals would decide what the appropriate award w- was. I'm not sure that's right. It seems to me that the Court of Appeals decides what is the limit on appropriate awards and what anything over whatever the ceiling is would be inappropriate. Is it your view that if there is a reversal or a remand in a case, that the instruction should always be to enter judgment for the amount that would be the maximum constitutionally permissible award, or would it be to send it back and say to the lower court, you got the range wrong, instead of being 1 million to 10 million, that's 500,000 to 2 million, and you can start over again and put a new award uh, uh, within the permissible constitutional range. Which, which way, what are you suggesting? I, I, I know you're not going to like this answer because I think that, uh, <laughs> that what I would say is I, the, the Court of Appeals probably could take either approach. If the Court of Appeals viewed the award as constitutionally excessive, 
there is authority that suggests that the Court of Appeals could set what would be the maximum allowable award constitutionally uh, on its own. I think there is also uh, the ability of the Court of Appeals to do a remand and to have the, uh, the district court uh, uh, perform that. Um, so I'm not sure that, um, that I Reynolds, have is it, is specific it response one way or the other on Is it settled that a Court of Appeals could order a remediator? I didn't know that that was a settled question. I thought I, that was an open question. Well, I, as I said to Justice Stevens, I'm not, I'm not sure I can say it's settled, so I think that my sense is that they could do either, either one. The Eleventh Circuit has, has, in the Johans case, ordered the remediator at the maximum allowable uh, uh, rate uh, constitutionally or, or amount constitutionally. The Tenth Circuit in uh, Oxy Products, on the other hand, uh, did not do that and uh, said it had to be uh, something that was sent back. But we, so, this Court has never ruled on that question, and it's in the background. That question comes up in the background of the Seventh Amendment and the reexamination clause, doesn't it, whether the Court of Appeals can — Well — you can, can instruct the entry of a final judgment that's different from the number that the jury came in? Uh, Your Honor, I, I think that the Seventh Amendment reexamination clause would not inhibit a court of appeals from uh, directing uh, the maximum amount. And I say that because we're in an area where we aren't concerned with facts tried to the jury. We're, we're in an area where, the, where we have a legal question, where the jury has, has made a, a public um, uh, policy judgment call on the punishment, and what the Court of Appeals will be saying is that the that a jury could not have uh, imposed uh, a punishment in excess of whatever that amount is. Mr. Reynolds, this, this problem exists no matter how we come out in this case, doesn't it? What relevance does this have to this case? I mean, th this is going to be a problem whether the review is de novo or whether the review is for abuse of discretion. And, and, and we, we, it seems to me we, we, we shouldn't find for or against you on the basis of how we feel on this, on this point. Isn't that right? I, I think that you would have the uh, — I mean, whatever standard you're going to use, if you decide that there's that, — that, that the district court got it wrong, you're going to be confronted with this issue. So I, it seems to me it has nothing to do with, with, with what we're wrestling with. But, but what I would like to know is why you think that a court of appeals would not be developing law if it's only applying abusive discretion standard. Doesn't it have to come out with a, with a written opinion? Um, and the I, written I, opinion I, I would, would say, you know, no reasonable judge could consider that this — this was not wildly disproportionate. I didn't make a lot of law, it seems to me. I, I, I believe the, the kind of opinion you're likely to get is what we got in this case, where the, the, the Ninth Circuit simply says they do not believe that the, that the district court abused discretion, and, and it would not provide uh, any enlightenment uh, or any kind of coherent, doctrinal coherence to the BMW v. Gore factors in an application. So, so what you want is not — I mean, I can't — I'm having trouble seeing what the difference is between the standards. Like a lot of other things, the answer seems to be it depends on what's at issue in the particular case. This is a federal case. This is a federal case. So they're already reviewing for abuse of discretion under Rule 59, the decision not to give a new trial on the issue. That's correct. All right. So inevitably, you're saying you have to review this for abuse of discretion, at least there. And now we get into the constitutional area, so it must be, you know, sort of beyond that. And there are certain things, uh, reprehensibility or harm, uh, you'd say, look, judge, remember the district court judge saw this and you didn't. Uh, and uh, take that into account. Now, when you get into the comparison of, of other, uh, of other uh, uh, penalties, 
As to that, I don't see why the district judge would be in a superior position at all. The judge would be in a superior position to decide how reprehensible this person's uh, 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 behavior was and how uh, harmful it was to this plaintiff. Uh, but then once we get the outer limits of that, the appellate judge, on his own, applies the constitutional standard. There's an element of deference, and there's a big element of no deference. I mean, what can you say beyond that? And, and then beyond that, the words de novo and abuse of discretion become slogans. People who want a tough review say de novo. The people who want a weak review say say uh, abuse of discretion. But those are slogans. In terms of how the judge should act, is it as I described? I think as the judge would act, it, it is as you describe. But I do think it, it, it certainly does make a difference uh, what standard uh, you, you are imposing. Well, all right, leaving the, leaving the slogan out of it. Uh, how do you, if, if what we want to have happen, and I'm not sure there's a disagreement between the two sides on it. I'll find out. Uh, how, what, what, what form of words do we use to get that to happen? I mean, it's like, be a judge. Well, <laughs> that, that would certainly be a good beginning. Uh, I, I, I think that... Uh, I think that, that what you would be looking at is the kind of standard that you imposed, uh, that was imposed in the, I'll go back to the uh, Bajakajan, I cannot pronounce that, Bajakajan uh, case, where the court had the excessiveness issue uh, in the context of a fine and the Eighth Amendment, and said de novo review was the appropriate uh, review to determine disproportionality and went through a not dissimilar uh, kind of an inquiry that BMW v. Gore laid out. And I believe that the de novo standard would, would require the kind of a demanding or exacting review of those guideposts in a way that would be much more rigid and, 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 uh, uh, and, and decipherable, if you will, and understandable than if you had just an abusive discretion review. And, and because it's a, a due process uh, right, and, and that's bottomed on the, on the interest of people being treated who are similarly situated in, in uniform, uniformly in a similarly situated way. Uh, there, is, there is much to recommend that you go to the de novo standard that will, over time, I think, help to develop a much more uh, articulate and coherent uh, line of inquiry for applying the Gore standard. Isn't it always an abuse of discretion when the trial court makes an error of law? I think when the trial court makes an error of law, that it would certainly be an abuse of discretion. But, but I, I also would say that I think the standard that we use here is one that is compelled by the nature of the inquiry and the fact that it's constitutional and by the, the, um, uh, the Gore guideposts and, and the comparative analysis, which are extrinsic to the historical fact record. And that's what uh, requires that there be a, a de novo review. I'll save the rest of my time for rebuttal. Very well, Mr. Reynolds. Uh, Mr. Massey, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, we urge an abuse of discretion standard for two principal reasons. First is the historical tradition under which punitive damages were largely committed to the jury with quite limited appellate review. The second reason is the pragmatic argument for abuse of discretion standard. 
Uh, as Justice O'Connor and Justice Kennedy have recognized, the Gore guideposts are intensely fact-specific. Reprehensibility, perhaps most of all, and as this Court noted in Gore, reprehensibility is perhaps the most important indicator of the reasonableness of an award. Also, what, uh, what do we do generally, if you look at our precedents on mixed questions of fact and law on appellate review, you see some statements that it's de novo review. What's the closest analogy, do you suppose? Well, we believe reasonableness isn't maybe a close analogy because the touchstone of excessiveness is, of course, reasonableness, and it is the sort of grossly excessive standard that Justice Scalia has referred to. And in many contexts, reasonable Well, but there, there is more than one question um, under the Gore standard. In yes. addition to reprehensibility, the ratio between compensatory and punitive damages awarded and how the award compares to other sanctions available for comparable misconduct. Those latter two seem closer to pure questions of law, in a sense. What, what have... What has this Court historically done, do you think, on appellate review standard for mixed questions of fact and law? Well, it's, it's done both, Your Honor. I mean, Pullman standard against Swint is a case noting the difficulty of precise categorizations. But in, in the context of reasonableness, Cooter and Gell, for example, the reasonableness of Rule 11, uh, the Pierce against Underwood, the reasonableness of a of a legal position taken by the government in equal access to justice cases. Cooter and Gell is notable because it discussed how negligence has been re- uh, traditionally reviewed very deferentially under an essentially an abuse of discretion standard. So I think Justice Souter's concern about the development of the law can be fully addressed through an abuse of discretion standard, and that is — I couldn't find any except the ones that you — I just had to look this up for another reason. And Justice Ginsburg has a couple in an opinion she wrote. But the, the, the case, I mean, this seems not a question of mixed fact and law. But up to a certain point, you decide what the facts are. Now, once the facts are there, it's purely a question of applying a legal label. And so the real question is, under what circumstances does a court of appeals uh, defer where all that's happened is the trial judge is applying a legal label to a set of undisputed facts? Now, until we get to the point of dispute, I'll give you all the discretion you want. But once we're in the non-disputed area, at that point, the only two I could find uh, were the ones you mentioned. There was a Rule 11 case, and she had both, and then there was a question involving uh, competence of uh, witnesses or something. Competence, uh, there was a competence thing. I can see it on the page. You, you, you know what I'm talking about? Yes, Your Honor. All right. I couldn't find any other than that. Well, it, it's, <clears throat> yes, we agree that the very last step of the analysis has a strongly legal flavor to it. But strongly legal, it isn't a question of degree. It is a question of black and white. Right. The question of applying a legal label to a set of undisputed facts is a question of law. Now, you can give as much weight as you want to the judge when you, before you decide what the non-disputed area is. So I'll give you all that. Now, now, I say defer, 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 as long as there's any factual matter in dispute. At that point, we reach the area where there's none. Now all we're doing is applying a legal label. Now, on that one, is there anything other than what Justice Ginsburg had in her opinion? Well, there's Gasparini, Your Honor, which, which uh, involved a New York statute which did not simply direct district courts 
to review the historical facts underlying a compensatory award, but instructed them to engage in a, a comparative analysis, an essentially legal analysis of this compensatory award versus other compensatory awards in New York to in see fact, if they were made, They gave that instruction to the appellate courts. This court said, because of the Seventh Amendment, that job, the only judge position to do it in the federal courts would be the district Exactly, Your Honor. And that was essentially a legal inquiry, but this Court said that the Court of Appeals was there are some, but Then that's exactly the question, because I'd say I don't see any reason why, once we're in the area of undisputed fact, why there's any reason that a uh, Court of Appeals here should defer one little bit any more than it does with any other standard of law, except with a very few exceptions. Well, as, as Justice Scalia noted, the question of whether a mistake of law has been made is an automatic abuse of discretion if, if there hasn't been a mistake. So traditionally, this label of abuse of discretion has been used, even though before Gore, even under state law excessiveness standards, there was always the last step of applying the law to the facts in the Court of Appeals. In other words, consider a state which has codified standards for uh, excessiveness of damages, as some states have, like Texas, for example. That The district judge has no discretion whether to apply those statutory criteria. He has no limited right to be wrong in, in Judge Friendly's terms. That's a pure issue of law in the last step, yet the standard of review has always been abuse of discretion. Well, I, th- I think the Ornelas case from our court is, is against your position to a certain extent. You say that the BMW standards are very fact-specific. Ornelas involved a Fourth Amendment question, which is classically fact-specific. And yes. yet we held there that the re- review is de novo and not abuse of discretion. Yes, Your Honor, you did. We believe that that case is, is not controlling because there were sep- first there were separate interests there, a need for national standards of law enforcement and, and other reasons that, that the Court uh, noted in particular. Well, it, but if, if BMW versus Gore announces a constitutional rule, Presumably, there's a need for national standards there, just as surely as with the Fourth Amendment. Well, Your Honor, we think, though, that a district court review would be the best way to promote uniformity in the context of punitive damages. Well, you could have said the same thing about Ornelas. Well, this court did note in Ornelas the importance of deferring to local courts and law enforcement officials on the on the questions underlying the. And relying the judgment as, as a decision. part of de novo review. Yes, Your Honor. Uh, you, you're correct about Ornelas. Uh, that doesn't involve the jury context and the tradition of appellate review in punitive damages cases. But you're right that, well, you, of course, you, d- you did also write the Ohio, Ohio versus Robinette, which was a Fourth Amendment voluntariness of consent to search. I don't cite Ornelas just because I wrote it. No, I understand. <laughs> I, I understand, Mr. Chief Justice. I understand. But the Robinette case is a case where you noted that the, that the fact-specific nature of reasonableness made bright-line rules uh, inappropriate, and you recognized the need to defer to the, to the sort of close people who are closer uh, on the facts and on the, on the scene. But let me just circle back for a moment, because uh, the Rule 59 context and motions for remitters, those are, have always been judged by an abuse of discretion standard. And that, of course, is where uh, constitutional excessiveness challenges are ordinarily raised. There's quite a logic to the Cooter and Gell position that we ought to have a unitary standard of review uh, in this area because the Rule 59 context, is, as Justice Breyer mentioned, will require the district judge to apply sometimes the very same 
standards as are in Gore to the judgment under state law requirements. The third, the second and third Gore guideposts have been tossed out as being primarily legal, but that's not always true. The, the, the second guidepost involves actual harm as well as potential harm. Uh, Gore noted that whether a high ratio is permissible uh, because a particularly egregious act might have resulted only in a small number of damages. In other words, there are a number of, of difficult factual questions associated with each of these guideposts. Well, the difference with 59, I thought, look, BMW is government's quite extreme cases. You know, and if you say, look, Judge, you have a lot of discretion under 59, and you have a lot of discretion to decide how egregious something is, and yet reprehensibility, and uh, how much harm, and all those things, now you give him discretion on discretion, then you say at this last step where you're also applying this legal label that only applies to to, uh, extreme cases, you're saying, and now there's some more discretion even in that, you don't have much of a rule left. Well, Your Honor, we think that you will. I mean, Justice Souter's concern that the law be developed in this area, we think, can be fully accommodated by abuse of discretion. Uh, the general dynamics amicus brief and the uh, brief submitted by General Dellinger in this case both discuss a lot of studies that have been done and cases that have been decided since BMW versus Gore. One striking thing is the role of courts under an abuse of discretion standard in striking down punitive damages. There are about six studies discussed, the GAO study, RAND, uh, Michael. Are, are they studies of what trial judges have done in reviewing, or are they studies about what appellate courts have done in reviewing trial judges? Both, Your Honor, both. In it, The total of both trial and appellate together is a, the range of reversal uh, goes from 54 to 70 percent. If you want to look just at appellate courts applying abuse of discretion, I believe there, there are numerous cases in the general dynamics brief, particularly there's a case called Kim, one called Kimsey, there's a Aetna Life case from the Ninth Circuit. So I don't believe the abuse of discretion standard is not a toothless standard. Uh, as this court noted in U.S. v. Taylor, which was a 1988 Speedy Trial Act case, which reversed the dismissal of a uh, case under the Speedy Trial Act. This court described abuse of discretion as permitting thorough appellate review. So we don't share the view. Well, but it's thorough appellate review. You say it's, a, it's not a toothless standard, but, I mean, his argument is that the teeth are very far apart and, and a lot is going to get through. And, uh, sure, there are some teeth, but, but not, I mean, I th- I th- it seems to me that, that, that your brother's argument is, is, does not depend perhaps on an exact parsing of the difference between applying de novo and, 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 and abuse so much as it does uh, in emphasizing that if you're going to have de novo review, it's going to be a more aggressive review and it's going to be a more articulate review. And, and doesn't he make sensible points uh, in, in that respect? Well, it, it, perhaps uh, superficially, but, I really, but we believe that, for example, the practical result of telling courts of appeals that they have to review de novo uh, long, burdensome records might be actually to reduce the amount of time they yeah, have. Yeah, but, I mean, you've just been telling us that they're going to review carefully on, on abuse of discretion, and I suppose they're going to have to look at long, burdensome records there, aren't they? Well, we believe that in a case involving the headline cases we see in the papers about big punitive awards can be addressed fully by an abuse of discretion standard. What's going to happen are the run-of-the-mill cases where the result is actually reasonable and falls within what this Court described in Gore as the zone of reasonableness 
those cases are going to occupy a tremendous amount of appellate resources without many differences in result. And the result of the whole process may be more unpublished opinions in punitive damages cases because the courts of appeals are busy reading records in cases where the, the abuse of discretion standard would have the same outcome. So we believe, as a practical matter, Rule 59 is a familiar standard. The abuse of discretion review has grown up not just under Gore, but under the state law excessiveness standards, which courts have always applied historically, even though the last step of applying any of these standards could be described as a purely legal issue. Well, that's, Mr. Massey, the the point that I'm having difficulty with. I think Justice O'Connor raised it first. There's one of these standards, reprehensibility, degree of reprehensibility, that sounds like even at the last step, it's a judgment call that the jury makes just as I described gross negligence and, and recklessness. I don't really see the difference. But the other two standards, the seriousness of the injury and the comparable awards in, in other cases, that the jury isn't so well equipped to deal with. And you can say, if this is this is law applied to historic facts. Well, sometimes it is, Your Honor. Uh, sometimes those second, I mean, you, the, the second guidepost is almost always part of the jury charge. The third guidepost is a part of the jury charge in some places. It wasn't in this case, although there is an Oregon statute that instructs juries on the criminal and legislative sanctions which could be applied. But even those guideposts will be very factual. For example, the Cooper brief in this very case, the reply brief, leads off with three pages of factual arguments about potential harm and reprehensibility and the legislative sanctions. So there, even at this level, there's still factual disagreement about how to apply well, then, then you have to take the facts as the plaintiff states them. Like any, I mean, you, you know, normally these trials, you take the facts as the plaintiff statesman, and then, then the defense comes along on appeal and says, well, you can't take that because there's no support for that, but you're going to have to do that anyway in any appeal. And so, but you, you, you read it with an eye favorably towards the side that won. You know, and then, then there's always an argument, you can't read it that favorably. But that, that's going to be true no matter what standard you have. But having done that, I don't see what's left that's so tough for the appellate judge to do. Well, Your Honor, the, in, in resolving the party's disputes about what reasonable inferences are possible. No, I'm saying that that kind of thing is true in every trial, every appeal. They're always arguing about that sort of stuff. And, and that's true whether punitive damages are at stake or not. And that's true. You know, I mean, you, you get an appeal. There are dozens of arguments like that from a complicated trial. So we always go through that. I know how to do it. I mean, I, I might not do it brilliantly, but I try. And, and what you do is you read it with an eye favorably towards the side that won. Now, that's true regardless. Now I'm looking at the stage beyond that. And once you're beyond that, uh, I don't see that it's so tough for, for a, uh, you know, it isn't too complicated. You, you now know what your facts are. You see, it's at, it's at that point that I, and I don't know how to write it to get this. Uh, I don't know. I, I see where you say I, I need. I don't think you disagree that much with it, but I'm not sure. Well, I don't. I agree. I don't think we disagree that much. Uh, we we think an abuse of discretion label for the analysis, though, is more appropriate because that's when in all the cases that you've reviewed, you've mostly been applying abuse of discretion under Rule 59. Uh, it's not. It perhaps in many cases you could say that courts of appeals are are 
Does the Court of Appeals apply an abuse of discretion standard when it's reviewing the decision of a trial court under Rule 59? Yes, Your Honor. And does one of our cases stand for that proposition? This Court's case is yes. It's sort of accepted. That's the accepted standard under the tri-county case that you heard earlier. That was the thing that Justice Breyer— Which we dismissed as improvidently granted. Yes, Your Honor. No, I'm not citing that case as precedent. Because we thought it was an open question. Right. How about Gasparini said that the standard for the appellate court vis-à-vis the trial court on compensatory damages is abuse of discretion, and that was a majority opinion of this Court. Yes, Your Honor. Isn't the difference between the Rule 59 situation as sort of precedent for what we should do here and the situation we've got here something like this? Rule 59 motions are reviewing sort of or are intended to review what are claimed to be specific mistakes and problems in individual cases. But what we're dealing with here is regarded somehow as a more serious and a more intractable problem than what Rule 59 addresses. And therefore, the argument is because you have a more intractable problem in trying to get some kind of coherent standard for punitive damages, you've simply got to have a more restrictive or a remedy or a more intensive review. So Rule 59 really is not a good precedent to appeal to. Well, Your Honor, procedurally, the excessiveness challenges are made under the Rule 59 rubric so that applying to the unitary I say normal remediator motions. But I don't think we perceive the problem of remediator issues as being a problem comparable to the difficulty of trying to get some kind of a coherent standard for punitive damages. And because the problems are different, maybe the remedies in terms of judicial review ought to be different. Well, Your Honor, I think the seriousness with which the lower courts address this problem is not really going to be affected by the standard of review. I think the message has been sent in Gore and has been received, and the courts have shown themselves quite willing to step in and reverse verdicts that they perceive to be excessive. And we believe that the de novo standard is frankly just confusing. It's beyond what the historical tradition would permit. When you're finished, I want to go back to the question of historical tradition, but go ahead and finish. Well, and it fails to recognize the firsthand vantage point of the district judge. This Court has recognized in the habeas context, for example, Professor Bator's warning that it's sort of debilitating to state courts to be told that they're going to be second-guessed by federal courts. In this instance, when you have highly fact-intensive questions, I think the message sent by a de novo review might have the unintended consequence of sort of undermining the district court's willingness to grapple with the record, knowing that whatever he does is going to be reviewed again by his brethren on the Court of Appeals. But that's quite different than the habeas rule. I mean, there's no writ of habeas pecuniae that says, you know, if you lose a 
punitive damages award in the state court. You can go into federal court and relitigate it. That's just the ordinary pressure that any trial judge is subject to, knowing he will be reviewed by an appellate judge, appellate court. Yes, Your Honor. We sim- I simply meant that the judges now are doing a very conscientious do- job of restraining. Well, then they have nothing court. to fear. <laughs> Mr. Mr. Massey, going back to the historical point that you alluded to, I'm not sure that I follow your argument, and I, I'd like you to maybe expand on it. Uh, I realize, I mean, we, we have faced the, the argument that historically uh, the review of a jury verdict uh, is, is very, for this kind of punitive excessiveness, is, is very grudging. But we passed that point, and we said, yes, there can be some review, uh, and that review, to begin with, can take place by a trial judge. And a trial judge who is performing what I think functionally is an abuse of discretion review of what the jury did, informed by particular gore factors and so on, uh, can set it aside. Uh, Once we have passed the point of saying there can be that kind of review by the trial judge, what is it historically that would have a bearing on the question whether the appellate court's review of the trial judge is either de novo or, or abuse of discretion. I would have thought that the, the, the force of historical precedent is behind us once we, we take the, 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 the position that the verdicts can be reviewed at all. Well, Your Honor, the common law, though, drew the line between the trial judge and the appeals court. That, that the, the Seventh Amendment was adopted largely to prevent appellate courts from interfering. Well, that might, ground, that might ground an argument for saying the, the trial judge's review is itself unreviewable. But that's not your argument. And if we accept the proposition that the trial judge can be reviewed under some standard, what historically, uh, uh, it, what does history tell us uh, as to whether that standard ought to be de novo, in which case the appellate court is looking at the jury verdict for abuse, uh, or, or on an abuse of discretion, in which case the appellate court is looking for an abuse by the trial judge who reviews for abuse. What does history tell us when, when we're at the stage where we, we are at now? Well, I mean, history would counsel that having gone to abuse of discretion in Gasparini, we ought not go further to, uh, to de novo. Because the, the, the Gasparini... But the, step- but the review of the jury, the substantive standard for reviewing the jury verdict is going to be exactly the same in either case. Well, but that was always true historically. In other words, even in the 19th century, uh, judges, the trial judges reviewed for excessiveness, but not courts of appeals. And even before Gore, we had common law standards for reviewing damages awards. Okay, but if that that is not a reason for saying there is no appellate review, I don't know why it is a reason for making this choice between two varieties of appellate. Well, sort of in, in for a penny, in for a pound, but we think we ought to yeah. stop where we are rather than, than, I mean, the court in Gasparini made the quite deliberate decision not to go to de novo review or to tell the courts and of did appeals. think there was historical precedent yes. for an abuse of discretion standard, and there was disagreement in the court whether that was so, but the majority held that there was. Uh, but so... Unless Gasparini is overruled, then I think this case has got to turn on, is there a significant difference between compensatory damages, where we said abuse of discretion is it, no de novo review, and punitive damages? It's got to turn on that, unless the Court is going to redo 
Gasparini and say, no, the Court of Appeals can have de novo review there, too. Yes, Your Honor. We agree. And we think the line between — May I just ask you this question? Yes. Uh, Is there not, at least conceptually, maybe practically it doesn't matter, a difference between constitutional excessiveness of a damage award and non-constitutional excessiveness? In other words, could not, like the damages in Gasparini or the damages here, might be excessive in a sense that they violated state law or they just offended the conscience some way, but did not violate the Constitution? Does it, is, there, is it conceivable that a, an award could be excessive as a matter of just general common law rulings of one kind or another, but yet not violate the Constitution? Yes, Your Honor. So that this case is conceptually quite different from Gasparini. Well, it, it, is, it is in that way, although, of course, the Gore factors themselves are distilled from the common law. I mean, Your Honor did not mint them from, from new uh, sources. You traced back to the, to the common law uh, roots. And footnote 24 of Gore, in fact, refers to their, their deep-rooted nature within the common law. So we think the common law precedents are, are still highly instructive. But going back to the line between compensatories and punitives, I mean, at common law, there was not that line. The courts did not treat the two differently. And, in fact, in footnote 7 of Cooper's reply brief, they discuss the, the common law tradition of treating them similarly and indistinguishably, in fact, in the same verdicts. So we agree that Gasparini here is controlling, and we don't think it should be overruled or modified, and we don't think a meaningful distinction can be drawn between punitive damages and compensatories. Uh, I would just like to add uh, and the, this uniformity notion that we've heard about. First, we believe the district courts are in a good position. But also, second, this court in TXO essentially rejected a proposal for intra-jurisdictional comparisons. The BMW factors are guideposts, but only guideposts. They are non-exclusive, and the, the, the question of gross excessiveness lends itself to an abuse of discretion standard rather than a de novo one. If there are no further questions, thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Massey. Uh, Mr. Reynolds, you have three minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, on Gasparini, uh, I'd just like to say uh, there's no need to overrule Gasparini. In that case, uh, the court was looking at an excessiveness issue as it relates to compensatory uh, damages, not to punitive, where it was very much tied up with a review of the historical facts, uh, and, uh, and that's why the, uh, the court said that deferential review was what was required in, in Gasparini. Uh, here we have uh, punitive damages that, uh, as I've explained, are of a much different uh, sort and are not tied up with the historical facts. So Gasparini does not uh, does not certainly need to be overruled. Uh, the other point I make under Rule 59. Excuse is, me. Uh, d- d- doesn't pain and suffering come into uh, a Gasparini uh, calculation sometimes? Again, it it's goes to the compensation, the compensatory award. Uh, we're looking now at that the yeah, punishment I, on the defendant. I understand. I'm not sure that calculation of pain and suffering is is much different from uh, from calculation the calculation at issue here. The calculation I would submit, uh, Mr. Justice Scalia, is it is on the side of the fact finding, the historical facts, and what the harm is to the injured party. Here we are talking about not facts tried to the jury of the historical facts, but the judgment made on the on the punishment side. I do think that there is a difference between non-constitutional excessiveness and constitutional excessiveness. This Court in Browning-Ferris did say that where you're dealing with an issue of non-constitutional excessiveness on the punitive damage side, 
that the deferential review uh, would be the appropriate review. But un unless what the Court has said in BMW v. Gore is, is superfluous, uh, unless we're going to say that there's no difference between the constitutional excessiveness and non-constitutional, then there is something here that requires a de novo review standard that is, that is not just the deferential review that you have in the non-constitutional context. And, and we would submit that, uh, that the, all the in, indicia that point to de novo review are, are in place here. And I would, I would point the Court uh, to uh, the Salve Regina decision of this Court, which uh, does indeed explain why, when a de novo review is, is indeed uh, required and necessary in a legal issue, especially of constitutional importance, uh, that abuse of discretion is no answer to that uh, review standard. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Reynolds. The case is submitted.